1: Welcome to Conversations with Cynthia. Over the next hour, you'll have the opportunity to listen to Cynthia Hyatt, an internationally recognized therapist and life management expert in private practice, with offices in Phoenix and Scottsdale. As a captivating communicator, Cynthia engages, energizes, and inspires her audiences to become all God created them to be. For more information on Cynthia's diverse background, log on to CynthiaHyatt.com. That's C-I-N-T-H-I-A-H-I-E-T-T.com. Let the next 60 minutes inspire, motivate, and encourage you to become your own best version. Now, here's Cynthia.
2: Well, thank you so much for joining me today. This is Cynthia Hyatt with Conversations with Cynthia, and we are doing a whole series on dating. So if you were with me last week, we had Dr. Bobby Brewer on the air, and we were talking about dating in the 21st century, and it was a great show. He has a lot to offer. He has been a singles pastor and has traveled all over the world and very prolific writer. So it was a really great uh, exchange that we had talking about this whole new way of dating and what it is to date in the 21st century. So it's not only a new experience, as it seems the rules have changed quite a bit on us, but it may be kind of a daunting endeavor as well. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that many of us are older as we are entering this whole dating experience. And it used to be, let's say in the you know way back in the 70s, 80s, even 90s, Um, That you kind of like met somebody when you were in college, high school, young 20s. You were hoping to meet someone and then you would get married and you'd live happily ever after, have children, whatever that is. And then we kind of, some of those dreams, some of those um, cultural expectations changed. And it began to be, we were going to be dating... Later in life, like let's say we're, we're dating and, and we're going to hold out to be married until we're late 20s or, or even 30s. And then we're going to wait to have children until we're in our 40s. And so then we, we seem to have this whole new upsurge of living together and that that has now become pretty much a, a phenomenon that is very accepted and almost expected in some circles. So we have a lot of things that have changed. And we have a lot of people also that are experiencing divorce and then they're reentering the whole dating scene. And so what we do know is that dating, dating is hard to do. It's not like it used to be. It takes a little bit more savvy, takes a little bit more effort. And the thing that's hard is that we don't quite have the same bounce back that we did when we were in high school and college. You know, it's kind of exciting maybe in high school and college when you're that age or junior high, you just kind of bounced back and went back out there and dated someone new. And so this, this is a little bit different process, a little more stressful. So, And there isn't really an easy way to do it these days. We would all like to have that same experience where we meet someone through somebody else or somehow they walk into our life and, and that's just not occurring because now we have workplace phenomenons where you're not allowed to date anybody in the workplace. Um, maybe you're not even exposed to people that you would want to date so then we are left maybe with church. And sometimes that's not always a great place to find someone either. And, and a lot of churches don't really cater to singles. So it makes it difficult to find people. I do want to give you some good news, though, about Phoenix, about Arizona. In 2006, and I know that's quite a ways away, so we know that it's better now, the best cities for singles um, each year was done by Forbes. Forbes. And they ranked the 40th largest metropolitan areas in America and evaluated them as based on their nightlife, their culture, job growth, number of singles, the cost of living, online dating, and whatever, quote unquote, coolness. So let's get to the bottom of the line first. Well, how did Phoenix do? Well, in 2005, the greater Phoenix area was ranked 14 out of 40. That's not bad. In 2006, we moved up to a whopping 11 spots to number three. And judging from the rankings, it seems that this new stadium you know, that we had had gotten, many of them, and many of the new bars and restaurants and a lot is going on down in Central Phoenix. We've got a whole new nightlife down in Central Phoenix and Central Avenue area. We've got down farther in South Central, we've got Glendale, we've got Scottsdale, we've got Paradise Valley, we've got way out in Chandler. We've got incredible places that are, that, are, that are growing. And so we have more bars, more restaurants, good prospects for job growth. More singles are moving to town and have fueled this meteoric rise. So according to, I'm going to give you another survey. This is a recent one uh, conducted by rent.com. Phoenix was ranked the top spot in the country for bachelorettes. Amazing, isn't that? beating out Seattle, Austin, Denver, and Washington, D.C. for the number one spot. And so the survey was based on several factors, and over 1,000 nationally representative single American men and women above the age of 18 were interviewed. So then the top cities were looked at for their male-to-female ratio or nightlife, divorce rate, and cost of living. And Phoenix, with its high single male-to-female ratio and low cost of living was pegged for the number one spot on the top 10 list. So the site also credits Phoenix's sunny weather and our opportunity for outdoor activities, as well as, quote-unquote, exhilarating and posh dating scenes um, as reasons to why the Valley is so appealing to single young women. So we have, this is amazing to me, because I grew up here in Phoenix. I've lived here the majority of my life. I've lived other places, but the majority of my life I have lived in Phoenix. And I am telling you what, Since I was here as a little, little girl, this place has changed dramatically. This place is huge. We now have 6.5 million people in the Phoenix metropolitan area, and over 50% of them are single. Now, according to multiple sources nationwide, 55% of Christian marriages are ending in divorce. And similarly, that same percentage applies to unbelievers in marriage as well. So we have about a 55% divorce rate. Actually, nationwide, about, we have about 56% of men are married and about 51.2% of women are married. And so marriage is kind of declining. It's also more difficult to stay together. And this is not because marriage is the problem, but because relationship skills are the problem. See, many people are now convinced somehow that marriage is the problem. And so they don't want to ruin a relationship by getting married. That if we don't get married, we won't break up. And so it's this interesting phenomenon that somehow we've removed the problem from the individuals and we've made the problem an institution or a construct or or um, this inanimate object we call marriage. And so, you know, I was watching this. This was just a couple of probably a week ago, I was going through channels, and I don't watch a lot of TV, but there was that movie, that Sex in the City, where I think, uh, I'm not super familiar with this storyline, but the main characters, you know, Carrie and what's the guy's name, Big, they're getting married. And there's this whole build-up, they're finally getting married, and Big is freaking out, and they're having all these late-night phone calls, and they don't want to ruin the relationship by getting married, and at the last minute, he backs out. He says he can't do it. She's devastated. So they have this big, huge wedding that's happening in New York City, and everybody knows about it, and all this time of planning, and he backs out. He's freaked out. And not because he doesn't love her, not at all, but because he just doesn't want to ruin it, and he's freaked out that marriage is going to ruin it. So then they're estranged for, I don't know, maybe a year or something, and they finally start talking again. I mean, she's, Carrie is totally devastated, as you can understand. So is he. They start talking again and get back together and they keep saying through the whole entire dialogue prior to this getting married and afterwards as they're getting back together. It's just you and me. Remember, it's just you and me. It's about you and me. So they end up getting married by themselves at the courthouse. And so what we see is that there's this idea that somehow it's the idea of marriage that is ruining relationships. And what we find is that it's the people going into it, either lack of skills or too much naivete or unrealistic expectations or, or, or the pressure that comes with the expectation of being married. So instead of seeing marriage as this safe place that we're now entering in, that I now have a safe place to let God do the good work that he started in me. And I have someone that's going to stand beside me, going to be a companion through that process won't judge me and will accept me while well, God does that good work. That's the ideal. That's what, that's what marriage is intended to be. You know, we go into, we're born into our family of origins or we're adopted into them or however we get into that an original family we grew up in. And the ideal for that little kid, the fantasy that we have as children, is that we have a safe environment to grow up in. We have a safe environment. We're going to be loved. We won't be abandoned. We won't be rejected. We'll be accepted for who we are. We'll be seen. And so what God does with marriage is he gives us a second chance. Now, he's not saying that he wants us to, quote, unquote, grow each other up. But what he does want to do is give us an environment that is one of choice. That I found someone that I'm choosing to be with. You see, you you all know we can't pick our families. We don't choose our families. But our marriage partner, we choose that partner that we want to be with for life. And we're choosing that partner with that little inner child part of us hoping that now I'm finally going to have this safe place, that no matter what happens to me out in the world, no matter how people feel about me out there, no matter how many failures I have, I've got somebody that's got my back, that loves me, that wants to be with me, that accepts me even at my worst. So... This is absolutely the right ideal. This is kind of what God does to us, with us, when he's marrying us. He knows who we are. He knows who he's marrying. He knows who he loves. He knows who he died for. And so what we want to look at with this idea of marriage is that when I'm going into marriage, I want to understand what marriage is offering me. It isn't that marriage is going to make it happen. And Christians have this, this naive tendency many times to think, if I just get married and marry a Christian... That's all it takes. Not understanding that marriage is the construct that affords me the ability to become the person that God has called me to be if I'm willing to let Him do that. If I'm willing to show up as a grown up, as they say. If I'm willing to step up to the plate and do the hard work and do my side of the street and do it well and have a partner that's doing the same thing. Then you see, then we have this union that allows. For that growth, we have this union that allows for the the love, the consistency, the commitment, the understanding, the acceptance that we need to face who we really are so that God can cause us to have that change experience to become who he intended for us to be. So we're setting up this whole entire series about dating so that you have an understanding of what marriage is about. Why are we dating? Well, we're dating to find someone to be with. And so I want you to join me in the next segment as we do this series on dating, and dating is hard to do. This is Cynthia Hyatt with Conversations with Cynthia. back to Conversations with Cynthia. This is Cynthia Hyatt, and we are doing a great series, probably about four to six weeks, actually, on dating, and the whole idea of dating in the 21st century and how we're going to pull that off, and what that looks like, and the difficulties that come with it, and some of the new changes in our culture, and the way that we as Christians manage this whole idea of dating, whether we are dating as a college-age person, Whether we are dating as late twenties, thirties, forties, as we're dating, if we as a person that has never been married, if we are a person that is re-entering the whole dating scene, if we're someone that is finally willing to re-enter the dating scene. So we're gonna look at all of these different things that go into dating and what that means in the twenty first century. And then the last segment, if you missed that, always remember that you can go to my website at com, at C-I-N-T-H-I-A-H-I-E-T-T dot com for all the podcasts. And you can listen to the, the previous shows as well. And we talked about last week, I had Dr. Bobby Brewer as we kind of kicked off this whole series on dating. And we talked a lot about postmodernism and dating in the 21st century. So you can listen to that. You can also listen to the beginning of this show if you missed it. So we kind of left off talking about this idea that there's this new or this versioning uh, concept or belief that marriage is actually the thing that breaks up people. So if I just don't get married, we won't break up. And and it goes so far these days as I, I as I talk with people that they actually think if I don't call it a relationship, then I won't ruin it. And and so it's this strange anomaly that that we actually think that marriage or calling ourselves a committed couple or that we are in a relationship, a committed relationship, is somehow the thing that destroys the relationship. And what we find out is that a lot of that commitment to that idea of marriage or a committed relationship, what that does many times is brings out many of the things that we need to work on. It also brings out some of our insecurities about not wanting to be rejected or abandoned. It brings out expectations that we have that we might not know that we have, that we can kind of deny if we're saying, well, we're not really in a relationship. I mean, you know, we're traveling together, we're sleeping together, uh, we're talking every day on the phone together, we're seen in public together, but we're not in a relationship. I mean, this is crazy. It's just simply not true. And so it's understanding that one of the safest ways to do relationship is to call it what it is and to be in it to the degree that you are, your behaviors are eliciting. So what happens when, when we don't do that for ourselves, when we don't call out what we really are doing and we don't, and and we deny that we're in a relationship of any kind as a way to protect ourselves, we're far more brokenhearted and we still have to get over the relationship, but it was never formally validated, which makes it that much more painful to try to get over something that nobody knew that you were in or that you denied being in. And so it's very important that we make sure that we are calling what we are doing, that that matches the behaviors. So that if we are with someone, introducing them to our children, having sex with them, Whatever it is, and I really do not recommend that. You know my beliefs on that and what that does to the the hearts of people and their souls. But if we're doing these things, we're seeing them regularly, we're traveling with them, and we're trying to say it's not a committed relationship, that, oh, we're just kind of hanging out together. Yeah, it's good. We'll see what happens. That we want to make sure that we are labeling the relationship in a way that matches the behaviors that we're doing. That kind of congruency causes us to be more realistic about our expectations and more realistic about it, what our needs are. And it's part of being a courageous person that speaks the truth. That says, you know what, this is really how I feel. This is really what I'm doing. This is really my intention here. And as scary as that may be, it's a lot more heartbreaking to have all of that unsaid and still experienced. So you can certainly see that our, our walk with Christ and through his words teach us how to treat others in general. We do know that, but we do know that, that the Bible is not necessarily a marriage manual. The Bible is all about knowing, knowing our creator, knowing God, knowing how he feels about us, knowing what his plans are for us, and that they are good. I wish he was sometimes more specific. And it gives us a template in, in many, you know, in a very short part of Ephesians in chapter five, it talks about marriage and how to do marriage, and so it, it, it's not necessarily this this line by line manual that we have because God also knew that culture would change. It doesn't mean that that sin changes. It doesn't mean that that what He says is healthy and appropriate for a committed relationship changes in His eyes, but the way we do it in our culture changes, and and we know that in our culture, uh, it's changing dramatically. Uh, In in some cultures, you have arranged marriages. We don't have that in America. So we kind of are on our own. And we also know that uh, we are dating in different ways, in different manners, and technology is a part of this. Uh, We also know that that we are having far more divorces than we ever had. And that's the Generation X has had to experience a prolific amount. I mean, just a, a, a huge amount of divorce that has not really ever been seen in the, history of, in the history of our culture. And so people are very afraid of divorce. So we have to look at this whole idea of, you know, Jesus is the greatest role model for how to be relational. But again, in the same way, he doesn't give us concrete skills that we may need for the 21st century. So we need to be knowledgeable and equipped for specific skill and attitude-based considerations for a lifetime commitment, a relationship commitment in the 21st century. So, what are those skills that we need to have? What do we need to be knowledgeable, knowledgeable about regarding the 21st century? And that's some of what we're going to look at in the next couple of weeks. So, we have to understand that relationships are very complex, very complex combinations of interactions between different, again, very complex human beings. So those interactions require understanding, discernment, wisdom, and training. I mean, we have all kinds of things. We have now dating apps. We have new rules for dating. We have rules for being sexually responsible. We have new rules for women. We have new rules for men. And sometimes we now are alleviating rules that maybe we used to all consider a given. And so now what we thought was a rule or an edict or an expectation or something we can count on, we've kind of taken off the table. Concretely or overtly, but covertly, a lot of those rules are still applying. We're just not talking about it, and we're trying to tell each other that we don't really obey that rule. But in our hearts, in our minds, in our expectations, we do. And so we have all these new things, and we have online dating as well. So we are going to have one show that is completely committed cyber dating and online dating so as we talk about this most important issue to the human race and this being the issue of relationship what we see in the birth of Christ and the family that occurs as as a result of it is the single most important event which ever happened in the world and this being the birth the life of one man and his relationship to humans So God showed his creation the single most important thing to him, something more important than justice or truth. It's his relationship to creation and to you. And we are going to look at what that means in the world of dating. This is Cynthia Hyatt with Conversations with Cynthia. Join me in the next segment as we finish some of this. Thank you for joining me again. This is Cynthia Hyatt for Conversations with Cynthia. And we are today talking about dating in the 21st century. And dating is hard to do. So this is the introduction to this series that we are doing on dating. And it's probably going to be about four to six weeks. We have a lot to cover when it comes to dating in the 21st century and how we actually go about doing that. And we've been talking in this hour a lot about the changes that have occurred And we also ended the last segment with this idea that, you know, we have a ton of changes that have occurred overtly. That's like what we say has occurred, but covertly what's going on in our hearts and our minds, a lot of this hasn't changed as much as we like to think it has changed. And some of this we are unable to change. And when we talk about the show, um, when we talk on the show about gender and temperament and love languages we're going to understand that that there are just some things that don't change. Some things that are just enduring since the beginning of time simply because of the way that, that men and women are made and the way that God has intended for us to relate. So what we want to look at is this idea that Christ came to show God's intent for relationship and how committed God is to us. And what a risk we really are. Because I'm constantly telling couples and and singles that relationships are a risk. They're all a gamble. And we like to think that we're a good risk. So the healthier we are as individuals, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, physically, the better risk we are when people risk relationship with us. So what we understand frankly, with God is that we are not really a good risk, (laughs) but I'm so glad that he gambles on the human race all the time and that he's constantly working with us because this whole idea as God created us and his creation is that we find that relationships are unavoidable. So as much as we would all like to say, I'm not doing relationships anymore, I'm done, I've had it, I'm not doing them anymore. What we find is that that's, Inherent in the human race is that we can 't help but relate we, we actually will relate to inanimate objects we relate to our car, we relate to the appliances in our house, we relate to whatever a, a tree in our backyard we, we relate to our pets, even though you know we feel like we have great intimacy with them they really don 't know us at all they they, they have an i q of about seven, and so they 're wonderful, but we feel this tremendous relational. Thing happening with our pets, and I have them, so I know that feeling. I love pets, and so you can see that we are just hardwired for a relationship. Well, the more complex the being is that we are trying to relate with, the more wrought with hardship and 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 um, confusion. Because the more complex the person is, or the thing that I'm trying to relate with, the more it's going to evoke out of me things that may need to change. So the more that I work on relating with God, the more I see the things that probably have to change. So what you find is that because relationships are unavoidable, you find that relationships are positive or negative. So it's up to us to determine whether or not to put effort into creating a positive relationship dynamic with a given individual. So what can be avoided, what we're saying is unhealthy and unsuccessful relationships may be able to be avoided now there may be some people in your life that you can't avoid but you can avoid the degree of intimacy you have with them so I can only do my side of the relationship I can't do both sides so you have to understand that the people who seem to be allowing us to do their part of the relationship also can fool us in reality we're still limited to our part of the relationship so it's imperative that you understand Although relationships are not avoidable, you are going to have a relationship even if it's the person at Circle K. What you can avoid is negative relationships. So you can work very, very diligently at how positive the relationship is. And that has everything to do with your effort, your insight about yourself, how you manage yourself. And we're going to do a whole entire show devoted to you. Do you know you? So that you can know what part of the relationship you are, what you can change, what you can't change, what you need to accept if you want to accept that in another person. So it's important to realize that when we're doing relationships, we can't avoid them. The more we try to avoid a relationship, we can ensure that we're going to get a negative relationship. So we want to really kind of suit up, show up, and realize that the more I put into relating with myself, with God, and others, the, more, the, the greater the chance for it to be positive. But I still can't control that other person. So there are going to be some people that we need to avoid. And if we can't, then we need to learn really good boundaries as we deal with people that are difficult. This is Cynthia Hyatt with Conversations with Cynthia. Join me in this last segment as we talk about dating in the 21st century. Thank you for joining me again, and welcome back. This is Cynthia Hyatt with Conversations with Cynthia. And today we are talking about dating in the 21st century, and it is hard to do. So we're going to do a four to six week series, and I'm going to talk in this particular segment of the show on all those shows that are coming up. And I want to encourage you to go to my website at CynthiaHyatt.com, and that's C-I-N-T-H-I-A-H-I-E-T-T.com. And you can listen to the previous podcast. And if you're just joining in right now to the show, you can listen to the first part of the show. So we are talking about the fact that relationships are unavoidable and that many times when we get very hurt in relationship, we just decide I'm done. I'm not doing relationships anymore. And I know, and I've been there and I have many clients that say, okay, I'm done. I'm out of relationship. I'm not doing them. And a month later, six months later, nine months later, they're right back in. Because we are hardwired to do this. Part of the, the healthy step toward relationship and dating is accepting the fact that I'm hardwired to be in a relationship with someone. I'm hardwired to couple with someone to, to a certain degree. And so we know that for some people, God has singleness as a part of their life. And sometimes we have singleness as a large part of our life. Sometimes singleness is our entire life. But I always am telling people that, you know, if God has called you to be single, you usually are pretty okay with that. It's not as heartbreaking as the individuals that experience that huge need or that huge desire to share their life with another. So what we're looking at here is we need to be healing from the relationships that hurt us so that when we go back out into the world of relationships, we are in a much better position to be with people, to pick people that are, that are a better match for ourselves versus going out into the dating scene injured because that, affects, that directly affects how we interact with people and it directly affects who we pick. So what we find is that even though it seems natural and logical to us to avoid relationship because they hurt so much, what you find is that, that it hurts far more to avoid relationships than putting the work into a positive relationship. Because relationship avoidant at best is really a feeble attempt at self-protection. And, and what we know is that human beings are relational. They can't help it. They, they die without relationship. Now, it doesn't mean that we have to have um, that romantic relationship. What we do know is that we have to have relationship. So, just as we know that the institution of marriage, which is an adamant object like we talked about earlier, is not the reason for failure in relationship. We know that the absence of relationship is not the absence of pain. So you may get out of a painful relationship, which is a marriage. You may say, I'm not going to ever get married again. But that's not going to fix the absence of relationship and the pain that comes with it. So the goal here is to cut down on unnecessary injury, damage, and pain. So what we see is after a thousand, thousands of years of stability and similarity romantic relationships have changed dramatically in the past decades over all the things sought for needed desired and or required the one thing that has climbed to the top of the list which virtually everyone is seeking after in a relationship is you guessed it happiness now this is part of being in a first world country third world countries aren't necessarily seeing marriage as, as the place that is going to give them happiness first world countries do Because we are meeting a great majority of our own needs. So one of the reasons marriages fail is because of the pressure individuals place on the union to be the quote unquote source of happiness. So prior to marriage, most couples do not have this mindset and are free to gain happiness in many areas of their lives other than the primary relationship. So what we know as Christians is that there is no quote unquote one person, no place, no amount of money, no prestige this is going to provide the happiness we are longing for. So, looking for happiness in another person is the easy way. It ends up making it much, m- ends up bringing much more hardship to you and the people you are with, though, if you do it. So, it's a very immature pursuit to always be looking for your needs and happiness outside of yourself. This is a very dependent or needy way to live. This is what children experience. See, their lives and much of their happiness is solely dependent on their primary caregivers until they're able to provide for themselves and what they need for happiness and contentment. So think about that again. Their lives and much of their happiness really is solely dependent on their primary caregivers until they are able to provide for themselves. So I'm depending on my parents' lifestyle. I'm depending on them to help me to be happy until I'm able to provide my own source of happiness. And some of that has to do with being in relationship with other people, but that can't be the sole source. So we, of course, we need positive relationships and it's a must for humans, but not necessarily the need to be married. So if being married were a primary need for happiness, peace, joy, contentment, then why would Jesus be single? Right? If that were really the only source, If that's where it ends, then why would Jesus be single? And why would God withhold that from people? So I do believe that marriage is intended for the majority of humans as a way to grow, mature, and know, experience God more deeply. But the enemy wants to lie to us and cause us to believe that it is somehow the arrival point in life. It's the end goal. And so I believe, you know, I really, I really see this, that Christians make the institution of of marriage an idol in and of itself. And it becomes the goal to work for. It's the arrival point that somehow if you're not married yet, there's something wrong with you, that you need to fix something and then you'll be suitable for marriage. Well, I have to tell you, I have a lot of married people in my practice that are not very healthy and that we're not suitable partners. And they're learning in their marriage how to be a suitable partner. And in fact, the majority of my caseload is, is marriages and families. So don't accept the lie that married people are the people that have it all together and that they're somehow the healthy ones. And that's why they get to be married. See, many times God gets them married because it's the only way he can refine them is in the light of an intimate relationship where they can't hide. That's not the only way to refine us. Some people God refines in their singleness then that's a better route for them. I know that for me, that was how God did it with me, that I was a single a great majority of my adult life. In fact, I've been single more, uh, longer in my life than I've been married. And so that's how God chose to do it with me. So some of us will marry Christ on earth and then skip all the other stuff. And so they'll be single and they'll be married to Christ and then they'll go to heaven. And so I frequently remind men and women that in the 21st century culture, you are still to leave and cleave to Christ first. Then you see if you're going to cleave to a mortal. And that's because we're in a first world country. We have the ability to create for ourselves pretty much what we need to sustain ourselves, And so we're not leaving our family, our dads who are taking care of us to cleave to a husband. What we're doing is all of us, male and female, we're cleaving to Christ And then we see if Christ wants us to cleave to a mortal. But we do need to leave our family of origin and create our own adult life. So romantic relationships, I have to tell you, they can be overemphasized as the unspoken source of satisfaction. And by their very nature, romantic relationships exist in the domain of fantasy, expectations, hopes dreams imagination they i mean they represent everything we don't have or can't have, and as a result, they become the depository for things wonderful and magical and fairy tale like and and i'm not against dreams i'm not, I'm not at all I, I think it's part of the thing that gives us hope and and God tells us when we don't have vision we we perish, and so i'm not against uh fantasy in that way of really dreaming and and a lot of the dreams I had as a little girl got me through. childhood. So what we have to realize, though, is that the fantastical thinking that starts with if and then becomes the dependent state of happiness. That if I have a partner, if I have someone that loves me, if I have someone that will care for me, if I have someone that likes me, then I'll be happy. And what happens is we end up living in the future and not living in the present moment God has created for us. And as a result, we don't learn and grow, as well as missing many of the blessings afforded to us in this present moment. So we now have to deal with this moment as our past because we didn't deal with it now. So most most of us are either living in the past or the imagination of our future as a way to deal with our present. So remember, we are not to exalt anything above our relationship to Christ. So when we look at the three years of Jesus' life, we can kind of reduce it down to two words, follow me. See, we need this to be the attitude in every moment and every day of our lives, especially in the pursuit and hope of a mate. See, only when you are actively pursuing, following Christ, will you be able to experience a life of contentment, genuine satisfaction. And this may include the hope and preparation for a, a lifelong relationship. See, imagine how wonderful it would be if you knew, if you trusted that God has a mate for you and is continually preparing that person for you as he prepares you for that individual as a way to cut down on the injury you may incur if you had to work out, quote unquote, work out everything on each other. And so please realize that marriage in and of itself is not a calling. Now, remember, if we're not married, because think about this, we're not married in heaven. That's not the calling that God has on people's lives. If I am a wife, if I am a husband, then I am called to be the best wife or the best husband to that mate that God has afforded me. And to continuously allow Christ to mold and shape me into the best mate, ever that I could offer to Christ so imagine just for a minute Jesus in relationship what would it look what would it have looked like if he was in a romantic relationship what behaviors what activities what attitudes would he have insisted upon in his marriage how focused would he be on his partner versus the calling God had on his life how would he manage his time commitment proximity provision etc so are you ready to be his partner that's imperative that we look at that. If I'm a partner to Christ, if I'm married to Christ, it makes me that much better of a spouse. My expectations are far more in line and reasonable and probably will be allowing that spouse of mine to be far more successful with me. So I focus on being God's partner while he works on refining me for that possible significant other. So, Next week, we're going to start with this whole foundational process. And that's the three loves. I have to have three types of love in my romantic relationship if it's going to work. And we're going to look at the next week. Am I looking inside or outside of myself for contentment, happiness, peace, joy? I'm going to look at relationship with myself. Do I know me? Do I like me? Have I forgiven me? Do I know my temperament? Do I understand gender? Do I understand love languages and my love language. What am I doing and dealing in how am I dealing with the family of origin issues, the family I grew up in and what I learned about marriages from them. So I'm going to educate me on me so that I can educate another on me versus the more immature uh, uh, way, which is going to require you to understand me and help me understand myself. We're going to look at myths and rules about relationships We're going to look at how how to determine your relationship readiness. What's my maturity level? Do I take care of me? How dependent am I? Would I want to date me, marry me, have children with me? We're going to discover how relationships succeed and endure, how they differ, how Christian relationships differ from the world, and we're going to look at chemistry. What is that? We're going to address things like red and yellow and green flags and in a burgeoning relationship and what are non-negotiable. So what is knowing emotional health and intelligence? How about emotional baggage? How much is too much? And then we're going to look at living together, cyber dating, traveling together, introducing kids and family members. How do I combine my life into what degree? So this is a trust issue with God. Do you trust him with your life here as much as you trust him with your eternity?